A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I was joined by the hilarious Dr. Michael Fontaine, a professor of classics at Cornell University. If you love jokes and ancient Rome, then you're in luck, because Dr. Fontaine's most recent work has been on the effective use of humor in diplomacy. Some of his previous books have covered wine, swine, mind, and a good laugh. While well-versed in ancient humor, this Latinist has broad interests in ancient Rome, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment, and has also been working on completing a trilogy of mental health books for Princeton University Press on classical ideas of fortitude, resilience, and adaptability. In our discussion, we talked about how professors can be great mentors and friends, about appreciating wine from ancient to modern times, explored humor techniques from Cicero to modern roasting culture, and about the transcendence of humor across time and cultures. I hope you all enjoy this amazing episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me today. I was so, so excited that you were able to come and do the podcast. I want to just start us right off, dive headfirst, and ask you how you got into classics. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I love that question because I am the poster child, as I often say, for a liberal arts education. I went off to college having no idea of what I wanted to do. And my very first semester, there was a required course. You had to take it in the field of the ancient world. And I found myself uh, signed up for a course on Greek sacrifice, knowing nothing about it, but it sounded super cool. And the professor was this absolutely wonderful, charismatic teacher. She had very high standards, but really cool material. One thing led to another. As she said at the end of the semester, anybody want to take Greek? And I thought, yeah, 
why not take Greek? I don't know what else to do. And it just started snowballing from there. Uh, after I'd done a, you know, a year and a half of Greek, which I thought was pretty tricky and pretty hard. I, they were like, oh, now you got to major in, are you got to take a Latin too? And I was like, oh, I never did that. So I went out to Berkeley and did their bootcamp workshop. That's how I got kickstarted on Latin. And I've had a bunch of adventures since then, but it really was a required course and a fantastic professor with great material. Wow. Okay. I love that. That that sounds the way it should be almost like you get to school and then someone amazing just comes along and says, you should do this and you should do this because it's amazing and you'll really like it and you can't say no. And then you do it and then it sends you on this wonderful journey. I wish I heard more stories like that. Unfortunately, it seems like I don't and it's just the opposite. So it's nice to know that people exist who have done that wonderful path. So when you were younger, did you always love mythologies or certain regional history that also helped sort of convince you, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll try this stuff because it sounds good? I wish I could say yes, I really do. I don't think I had uh, anything kind of like the, the great intellectual resources available to me. I grew up in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's not entirely true, but uh, it's closer to true than false. I mean, yeah, Greek mythology, for sure. Everybody loves that stuff, right? It's super cool. And uh, occasionally I get books out of the library, but I didn't know anything about the history, nothing about the philosophy. And I do, I remember a moment, I've got an older brother and he went off to college a year before me. And I was looking through the course catalog, which back in those days was this big fat printed book. And there was just this endless supply of stuff. And there were two courses on offer. One was the Roman Republic and the other was the Roman Empire. And I said, well, those books sound cool. I don't know anything about them, but I would like to take those. He says, well, I'm not going to take those. And he went off and did his own thing. But then, um, you know, you, you keep kind of chasing these things around. The internet's changed it all. Now it's so easy to find what you're looking for. But I just, I should probably echo what I said before, the um, power of suggestion from a professor who takes an interest in a student like that or in, in opportunities. Uh, we can't or can't underestimate that. You know, I had another professor, a different one in my college, and she came to me my junior year and she sticks this application in my hands. She says, you should fill this out. You might get a chance to go study abroad in Italy. And I said, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't have any money for that. And she insisted. She said, no, 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 you need to fill it out. They do have some scholarships. You have to. I insist. And I did. And I went and it changed my entire life. So when you get that kind of human connection with a professor, somebody who understands students are shy, reluctant, have concerns. I think we should do more of that kind of thing. I totally agree, which leads perfectly to how important do you think it is to have a professor or some sort of mentor as you're going through college, as you're in this really experimental phase? And if you notice a student who's kind of wavering and says, oh, I love this mythology course I took my freshman year, or I love this, I don't know, Greek tragedy course, anything really. But they say, you know, no, I don't really want to get the major, even though I'd love to, but my parents say I have to get, you know, make money. I'm never going to get a job. And so classics is completely useless. And I see it as really more of a hobby. So whatever, I'll just read some books in my free time. It's not worth the major. So that sentence started off so happy and it ended so bleak. But I can tell you, uh, I have seen many times students in exactly that, that position where the parents don't just say, go study whatever you're interested in. Uh, you do need something practical. And often, you know, we find students whose parents mandate, you have to take engineering, you have to take pre-med or something like that. And I always say, look, number one, yeah, money is important. So let's not pretend for a second, you're going to have this wonderful life if you don't have any of it. You need to make money. But yeah, you might not want to major in classics, but why not take a course or two? That did. Uh, And we often do get that, right? We have students who are taking all these required courses and calculus and that sort of thing. They say, boy, I have one opportunity to take something kind of fun. I'll take 
warfare in the ancient world, or I'll take ancient technology. I've got colleagues who teach both of those courses. And then if you can fit it in, in your schedule, absolutely take this stuff, right? But I want to answer your question about the mentor. I hope students are seeking out mentors because it's less common for a professor to obviously seek out a student. And I, I, I don't think that happens, even if it happens in the movies where the professor would, you know, email, he said, I noticed you are this blossoming genius, uh, right? That's not really going to happen. But so many of us see students as just younger versions of ourselves, right? We're just older versions of you, right? We have the same curiosities, the same enthusiasms, the same uncertainties. It's great to get to know, you know, the rising generation and say, so if they come, they say, oh, you know, I'm really curious about this or that. We love to talk and share and see what we can do to foster your interest or, or support it. Sometimes we know of opportunities that you're not going to find in other ways. I mentioned the study abroad in, in Italy. That had never occurred to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, wow, this is amazing. So we can do that kind of thing. Yeah, I know the benefits of getting to know professors, but I found it really interesting. I had to almost sell all of my other friends on this is why you should get to know your professor or this is why you should go talk and have a conversation. I don't know what it's like from the professor position. I, I, I'm assuming you would have a really great vantage point from from where you're sitting. But from our side, it seems like a lot of people are, quote unquote, scared to go talk. And, and it's not like the conventional, oh, they're scary human beings. Sometimes it's almost like the, the power differential and the fact that a lot of people are just like, well, I don't really have anything in common with them. And it's kind of awkward. And I see that as a quite artificial barrier that you're going to put up this wall and say to yourself, really, and to all your friends who, if they're kind of questioning and then you say, oh, no, no, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. And then they're like, why? And then you just get some sort of version of, well, they're, they're just so smart and brilliant and they've got their own life and it's awkward because they're older. Ew. Yeah. Well, the, the you factor of they're old, that can be a problem, but you know, so this is where it really matters um, where your audience is the kind of institution they're at. So I went to a small liberal arts college. There were no graduate students. The courses were all very small and the professors, you know, almost all the courses were discussion-based. So we didn't have what they call the sage on a stage model. We all thought the professors were these brilliant people. And you also got to know them. A lot of them would eat in some, the same little small cafeteria that we all had. So you see them around. Um, sometimes, you know, some of them would go play Frisbee with the students afterwards and everything. Now I have the great fortune to be at Cornell, uh, which is a great place. It's huge though, right? And we also, so it's a very big institution. And we also have graduate students, which, add, which adds kind of a layer. So undergrads very frequently... I think manifest the kind of attitude you just described. All these people, are, they might as well be robots from Mars or something. I don't know anything about them. I could never see myself as somebody like that. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But that's all coming from inside the student's head. So that's what office hours are for, right? Knock on the door. Find out if you have a real question. Yeah. And, and don't just see it as a way to get information that you missed. I'm always telling people, office hours aren't just like the place you go because you missed a lecture. So, oh no, the only way you're going to get that info is by going to ask or talk or something. And even then people are like, well, I'll just email. I won't even go physically. And, and then I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's your choice, but that is quite a loss. This brings up a great point because I wanted to segue this somehow into your own research. There's this idea that even if the professor isn't quote unquote old, and I'm not trying to be ageist or anything over here because one of my favorite professors was like 70 years old and I loved her and she was the best professor I ever had. There is this idea that even if you have a younger professor who's 
on the younger end. They're not funny or they're not, they won't quote unquote get it, whatever us young people, whatever people think we're doing these days. Your research though, I saw, it's all about telling jokes. So if you don't, if someone doesn't go talk to you, they don't know that, that you're, you could be quite hilarious or that what you study is all about jokes. One, isn't that just a great reason that you should go to office hours to learn about their own research in case it might have something to do, might interest you and want to further your own research? And two, how did, how did you settle on telling jokes in ancient Rome? Because I'm just so curious. Well, I'll tell you that, as I said before, we, many of us just see ourselves as older versions of you. That may not look at that way from your point of view, but we really mean that, right? So I just got older, which of course beats the alternative. And I hope that continues happening, but telling jokes. Yeah. So I had um, a book come out about a month or two ago, and it's a translation and an edition, which is to say, I re-edited the Latin text. That's seen as sort of a grand thing to do of Cicero and Quintilian on how to tell a joke. And what the two of the authors, do you know both of these authors or at least one of them, Cicero? Mm -hmm. um, most people know Cicero, I think, probably listening. Quintilian's a little more rarefied. I don't know how common people know him, but he was a professor. Cicero was sort of the president of ancient Rome. He was, they call it a consul. And they called him the stand-up consul. And I put that phrase on the cover of the book. His enemies called him the stand-up consul. What they meant, as I wrote in the introduction, they didn't think he was a stand-up guy, like the solid, reliable dude you could count on when you need help. They meant he was sort of a president who acted like a stand-up comedian. And Cicero not only did that in his own sort of um, practice of, uh, he was a trial lawyer and also a politician who had to win competitive elections, but he wrote this whole treatise called De Oratore in Latin on the ideal orator, the ideal public speaker. Quintilian, about 150 years later, wrote another one, uh, sort of a, a master textbook on the same topic on the orator's education. And both of these people said, we're gonna teach you the art of humor, but with an important distinction. You're not here just to get laughs. If you just want straight out laughs, those kind of jokes, you need to go to like Roman comedy or something. We got a bunch of that stuff. And in an earlier part of my career, I was really interested in that stuff. But both of these guys said, we're gonna teach you the art of telling jokes to win the room. Whatever it is you wanna do, if you wanna win student council election. If you walk into a cocktail party and it's awkward and you don't know these people, a little joke can totally break the ice. People think you're a genius, you're witty, you're fun, they want to hang out. Or if you get invited to give a lecture or go on a podcast and you have jokes at the ready, or you know what kind of jokes not to tell, then you'll be in great shape. And so uh, it, and Cicero and Quintilian, they were great thinkers, but it's not just their ideas. They were getting a lot of this from, in part, Greek philosophical and rhetorical ideas. Um, most of that stuff is lost, but it's preserved now in Cicero. And then Quintilian added on a bunch of other cool stuff. Okay. And where does the wine come in? I mean, yeah. it sounds like a great idea. Just put some wine and some jokes together and boom, you get ancient wine and stand-up hour, but I want to hear from you where the wine comes in. Yeah, it's a tough life. Somebody's got to do this stuff, right? So the cool thing about classics is you, the baseline at the moment, or at least when I was in grad school, is Greek and Latin, right? But within that, all right, you can go off and do whatever you're interested in. So some people were interested in stuff that would put me to sleep. And I be, I said, well, all right, I think I'm going to be interested in comedy and jokes. And that seems to be taken seriously enough that I can do this. But I did, yes, you're referring to a book I published last year, which is kind of a prequel to the Cicero book. And I, this is cool about Cornell. If anybody ever comes to visit, you will find that Cornell is located in a wine growing region of the Finger Lakes. So we're in central New York, the middle of nowhere, which is nice once you're here. It's kind of 
not that much fun getting here, but once you're here um, on the shores of the lakes around here, they make beautiful white wines, really, really world-class stuff. And there are some red wines, maybe not anything to write home about, but the white wines are great. And I tell you this why. Well, about five, six, seven years ago, a neighbor of mine and I were talking, and she's a grape scientist that is employed at Cornell because we have this huge wine region. And there's a whole department of viticulture and enology. And she said, let's teach a class together on what human beings have done with wine from the ancient world till today. And then she stopped. She said, do the Greeks and Romans, do they ever talk about wine? And I started laughing. I said, That's the only thing they ever talk about. They drink a ton of wine. They love it. Um, so we taught this course. And once we started, I was getting materials together. I stumbled on this Renaissance Latin text called De Arte Bibendi the art of drinking. And I said, what on earth is this thing? And I started reading and I was like, whoa, this thing is, it's awesome. It is hilarious. It's three books on how to manage alcohol, but it actually makes a serious point. The author was a dude that nobody's ever heard of um, named Vincent Absapeus. And he lived about 500 years ago in a part of Germany that has an identical wine region. So they make white wines there on, and this guy was there to sort of witness the birth of binge culture, uh, binge drinking culture as an accepted practice. I've talked a little bit about this in different contexts. And I say, you know, the birth of binge culture and people immediately say, oh, well, people have always gotten hammered and Alexander the Great got drunk and he killed his friend. I say, that's true, but that was seen as a bad thing back then, right? Do you know this in ancient Greece and Rome, you were supposed to water your wine down? And we do this in our class here. We, we taste wines in every class. And so um, if you mix three parts water to one part wine, it tastes kind of like a soft drink, like a Fanta or something, not carbonated. And then the Romans did two parts water to one part wine, which, you know, a little bit stronger, but it would take a lot to get hammered if you're drinking three parts water and one part wine, right? I mean, your stomach's going to give out usually before you can do it. But so flash forward to about 500 years ago in Germany, in this part of Germany, Bavaria, the north of Bavaria, and there were already fraternities at the universities back then. This surprises a lot of people. They had these sort of, all these guys were getting educated to grow up as knights, K-N-I-G-H-T. And you like these suits of armor, you can see them in the museum. You look at these things, plate armor, decoration, oh my God. And all these dudes are being trained in this hyper-masculine way of becoming a soldier, but it was already becoming obsolete. And so instead of sort of jousting and that kind of stuff, they turned to alcohol competitions to, I guess, fill the void. That was kind of what I wrote a little bit about. And so you get the birth of people playing competitive drinking games of the kind where, you know, you're trying to see if you can get the other person to pass out first. So they were drinking just sickening amounts of wine at the time. It's absolutely amazing. So this guy wrote the poem to try and teach people how to moderate their drinking, but it's totally hilarious. It's great. I love this thing. It's great. <laughs> it sounds fabulous. Also, wait, I'm jealous. So are you telling me that there is a college level class offered where you can just go do wine tastings because why did I not know about this one and two can I come and audit it like I will fly to the middle of nowhere so I can just come and taste some wines so we actually at Cornell offer two courses where you get to do this one is the smaller one that I do with my colleague and the other is the most famous class at Cornell University it's called wines it is taught by a wonderful colleague of mine she I think caps the course at 700 students. So you would have to get on the waiting list and it's very hard to get off the waiting list. It's usually filled with seniors, but uh, faculty, people from the area, everybody wants to take this. And she teaches wine appreciation because there's a ton of information like on a label 
you pair it with and everything. She, she's the best at this kind of thing, this legendary class. So I, I've tried to take it myself that I could never make it fit my schedule. But ours, we do the wacky stuff. You know, the Romans didn't just mix it with water. So they mixed, uh, we don't do this one, but for example, they mixed lead into their wine. That seems like a bad idea, right? Ugh, disgusting. Wines, and we, they mixed salt water, seawater. So we've done that one. That one's pretty yucky. <laughs> um, and pine resin, which uh, we don't have to mix because they still make that in Greece, Retsina. And that'll wake you up if you're not used to it. And so we get to do all the fun stuff. But the other class, the famous one, they go in, they taste a delicious port or a red wine or whatever they've got for the day. Fantastic class. So it seems like the big one, though, is just like very general, while yours is definitely more classically focused. Yeah. So the, the other course is wine appreciation, right? So as you go forth into the world, if you are interested in this, uh, how do you appreciate wine? I mean, the way to do it is not to wrap a bottle of fine wine in a brown paper bag and sit on the curb of a street and drink it. That's, that's not really wine appreciation, but there's a lot of thought behind, you know, the pairings, the kind of foods you eat it with, and then um, teaching people the vocabulary and that kind of thing. No, but ours is like, what is this mystical thing, wine, right? Or alcohol, but especially wine. If you go to the Bible, the book of Genesis, you know Noah. Most people know Noah. That's the guy on the ark, right? God floods the world. The guy brings all the two kinds of all the animals. He gets on there. But most people don't know this. When Noah gets out of the ark, he goes into the winemaking business. It's pretty interesting. And so a lot of, you know, some smart people have thought, well, maybe it has to do, he's coping with you know, surviving the flooding of the world and that kind of thing. Other people think maybe this, they're both accurate. This is the origin of where wine comes from. And the point that, I, that is kind of interesting, right? This go, they're saying that wine goes all the way back, as far back in human history as we can go. This is also kind of interesting. If you leave grapes in a barrel or even in a heap on the ground, they will automatically ferment and they'll automatically. So fermentation, just to remind people, is, you know, when sugar converts to alcohol the sugar becomes the alcohol and it happens because there's yeast that grows on the grapes and it kind of eats this stuff and it's waste product is the booze but so if you go to the sistine chapel in rome if you ever have a chance to go in there and you look up and see the famous frescoes by michelangelo you will see noah sitting right next to a huge wine vat it's pretty cool i will have to go look for it next time i'm anywhere near rome or yeah the vatican i I'll have to go after you. They, they, they ban you from taking pictures, though, I believe. So I can't actually go take a picture of it and say, this is this is no one. Here's the wine. Oh, You'll just have to look up and enjoy it in the moment. That's your, although for the last time I was there, people were getting away with taking their pictures because there's so many people. Well, pre-COVID, there were so many people. And then they had the one little guard who would like have his whistle and then he'd whistle and say, no, 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 no photo, no photo. And then he would leave the room. And he was the only one in there. So then I saw all these people take their cameras and click, 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 click. Yeah, I, I think it's a losing battle. At least they're trying. Then you get all the people pretending they don't know what no photo means, even though it's the same thing in like a, a whole bunch of different languages. All right, what else could the guard be saying? <laughs> but the, the last time I was in the Sistine Chapel was a long time ago, but it's like a mosh pit in there. I mean, it really was. People were shoulder to shoulder. And I'm guessing that it might be a more enjoyable experience to try and get in there for anybody who has access to to try and go do it. I'm sure they're limiting the space between people. Uh, it'd be pretty cool if you could go do it. The oh, old yeah. trick, the old trick once upon a time, I don't, I think they've changed it, but uh, I lived in Rome for a long time, about 20 years ago. And the goal was to get to the Vatican Museum's very first thing. And the Sistine Chapel is the last thing, right? You leave there and it, it boots you out of the museum. And so we would sprint as soon as we got as close to the front as we could 
of the ticket line and we would sprint as fast as we could to the Sistine Chapel. You'd have like 20 minutes all by yourself to look up and then we would walk back and redo the museums. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Oh, that's a smart thing. I don't know if you could do that now. I mean, I suppose you could try, but if anyone is listening and they are going to either live in Rome or study in Rome, can you check that out for me and then let me know? Because if that is still possible, I would like to know so I can go do it next time I'm there, please. And thank you. So, okay. You have the jokes on one hand, you have the wine, and now I believe I saw that you also add foreign relations and diplomacy to all this. I mean, this is like some multi-talented arc. So tell me how that factors in to what you're doing as well. Well, I'm not working on any of that at the moment, foreign relations. That's funny. I've got some family who do that kind of thing. You know what I'm working on right now, though, is uh, three sequels to the these two books. They're both called How To, right? One, How to Drink and How to Tell a Joke. And then all three of them are inspired by the COVID shutdown. So it's how to, it's sort of a mental health trilogy. And the first one to come out, we're going to call How to Grieve. Should be out next, at the end of next year. So I, I've become really interested uh, in the last few years, not so much about what, you know, policy choices are, but what personal choices are. How do you respond to stuff going wrong, things you can't control? This is sort of you know the cornerstone of all ancient philosophies. What do you do about the things you can't stop? So how to joke is one way of doing that, right? I mean, you can tell jokes, you know, uh, you look at the world and you see it's not perfect. Should be perfect, but it's not perfect. So you could shake your fist at the sky and scream, ah, bah, I'm angry. And you could take to social media, write letters to the editor and scream and holler about the world. Uh, and that might work, but it often doesn't. So you can tell jokes as an alternative. So I'm working on that now, uh, how to grieve. I, that one's finished. And then after that, I'd like to find strange texts, you know, stuff people haven't heard of. Um, so I'm, the one after that is going to be called How to Cope. And it's the first Christian author that'll be in the series. This dude named Prudentius who lived in Spain in the fifth century. It seems to be the world's first graphic novel, you know, like comic book. This guy Prudentius apparently commissioned illustrations to go along with his poem. And it's all about warrior women fighting each other. And the iconographic tradition is pretty huge. You can find cool reconstructions all over the internet. And uh, my editor doesn't know this. I hope he's not listening, but I'm hoping that I can get some illustrations included in the book. I'm going to try and commission an artist to, to put some fun stuff in there. So that should be really cool. I, I really am enjoying working with this stuff right now. Well, I look forward to when it comes out because I'll definitely check it out. I want to I want to know how to. This is great. This is like a, a whole series of ancient how to's for the, for the modern world. I love it. That's what the series is. So these two, I think how to tell jokes, number 15 or 16 or 17 in the series. They're the brainchild of this terrific team, especially this one editor at Princeton that I've been working with. And he uh, it all started with a book about seven or eight years ago called How to Win an Election. And it was by Quintus Cicero, the almost totally unknown younger brother of Marcus Tullius Cicero. And somebody translated the, the text. It came out great and it became a sensation. And so what do you do? Well, you have a sequel. And then after the sequel, then you have a, a series. But what's neat is that they let us put the Latin on the one side or the Greek on the one side and the English on the other, kind of like lobes. Um, but most of these are selections of different stuff. And so it's a totally different take. And we get to put in some footnotes and stuff too. Well, I didn't know that existed. So how to win an election sounds like something a lot of people should read because it might offer some really interesting lessons. Unless it's, I don't know, we all know politics back uh, in ancient times were also a little less than savory. And there's a bit more murder and scheming and, and just overall botchery, I suppose. Although and bribery, buying votes. 
they were big into that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you could argue that they there are still ongoing attempts to persuade folk to change their votes or vote a certain way today. But yes, it was very different from the ancient way where it was a lot easier to go unnoticed. There there was not social media, there was not the paparazzi in the modern sense where you were going to be followed and observed. And the nice thing is there wasn't a tweet for everything that we could follow and say, aha, this is what they said. So why are they changing their vote now? Yeah, there was no gotcha culture uh, back then. And we have entered in the last, really, it's only the last 10 years, maybe not even that much, this gotcha culture that we now find ourselves in. And I think it's the perfect storm of everybody having a cell phone. And you can hear my language. I don't even say cell phone, a smartphone and having access to instantaneous communications like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But Twitter is the one in particular, it seems to really cultivate a knee-jerk response. You know, you hear something and the emotions surge and you whip out your phones. I'm going to teach that so-and-so. They're all wrong. And everybody's screenshotting everything. Yeah. So it's a different sort of world. I, uh, I drew a comparison with this in his book, How to Tell a Joke. So we have Cicero was writing jokes you could tell for influence in, in the Roman Republic. So that's back when it's all competitive elections. But Quintilian came of age in the Roman Empire where there's this supreme monarch at the top. And there were already in Rome, uh, we think, they're getting started with secret police who are listening in. You know, would you tell a joke if it could make it all the way back to the boss? Is that really a wise thing to do? And I compared it to the social media era. You know, before Twitter, you might make a joke and it might be good or bad, but that's probably the end of it unless you're on TV. But now people put things out on Twitter. <laughs> so what, what were you thinking? I think they need to read how to drink before they tweet because some people, they put all kinds of stuff out there. I said, what makes you think that you are going to be able to get that back? So there's a Roman proverb, you know, it's from Horace. He says, Wokes missa nescit rewerti, the voice or the word once released can't find its way home. And then he says, you better think on something for about seven or eight or nine years before you publish anything you have to say. That's from the Ars Poetica, the treatise on how to write art or how to create art. Oh, man. And okay, so in ancient times, how did people deal with something that I think we all struggle with now, certainly now in the modern political environment, which is you have a joke, but it walks that very fine line between it could be perceived as funny or straight up. It's just going to be so offensive that people are going to be turned off right away. I think most people now are kind of like, oh, well, I should err on the side of caution. I don't want to say anything that could be perceived as offensive because that'll blow up. That'll go anywhere before I can even explain. And then people will just make up their minds. In ancient times, were they also so careful cognizant of these wide-ranging repercussions or were they like you know what i'm just gonna go for it because if it does maybe win people over i'm good no they 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 definitely were cognizant of it that's a great question they uh quintilian in particular but also cicero they say you've got to be totally cautious about any joke you make because yeah of course people are going to look at you so the amazing thing you know cicero's enemies called him the stand-up consul we have this ancient biography by plutarch and Plutarch says, he said, this guy, Cicero, he never knew when to keep his mouth shut. And in the end, it got him in serious trouble. Cicero was assassinated by his enemy, Mark Antony in 43. And so it, it's quite strange to read Cicero's own treatise that says, you know, one of the hardest things to do, but you have to do is hold back witty sayings when they come to mind. 
I know it's hard. It's really hard. But then Cicero himself didn't do it. But, you know, if I can generalize your question a little more, when you think about not just jokes, but about all this hubbub, and I think about social media a lot because I really came of age before any of it existed. And I don't do it myself. The Epicurean, you know, they were a sect of philosophy. It started in Greece in the fourth century, but it became very popular in Rome. Lucretius is the most famous author. He wrote a whole epic poem sort of praising this stuff. Their attitude was just check out, just skip it all. And they had this mantra that they, they liked in Greek, biosas, which means basically live in obscurity. And there's a famous um, passage at the beginning of Lucretius' second book of on the nature of the universe, De Rerum Natura. And he says, imagine you, you just check out and you can look down and how pleasant it is to watch all these people striving and competing and culture warring and wanting to win elections and own their enemies and all this. And just to chill out and say, that's not my problem. Some people find that very comforting, but uh, it's pretty clear a lot of not enough, right? Because people keep coming back and they say, I'm going to quit all this stuff, but that often doesn't happen. The, the social media companies make it hard for you to quit. They keep your account active pretty much forever. Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned that, what would these ancient Romans think of these events that we host today that are all about roasting people? I mean, or, or are irreverent jokesters who go on tv and have their like night talk shows so bill maher people watch him and they're like oh he's so funny because he tells jokes that offend everyone no one is safe or even things like the what is it the, the white house correspondence dinner where you just you go and you just roast everyone you can would they just look at us and be like what the hell these people are not adhering to the you shouldn't say it they're just going for it also a really interesting idea, right? I remember when I first became aware of political roasts, I said, why are people doing this? Why would somebody voluntarily submit to being humiliated like this over and over and over? And it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't have this. They definitely did have political humor, cutting political humor in Aristophanes, for example. That's his brand. It gets all sort of diluted when you get down to Menander and the later comedians. But it might have been a good thing, right? If you think about a roast, what is it? It's a strange kind of social valve. It cuts down anybody whose ego is getting too inflated or is getting too powerful. And so traditionally, especially in the last couple hundred years, politicians have allowed, uh, this is true not just in democracies, but also in sort of uh, monarchies. They have allowed people to sort of just vent their steam by <laughs> telling these humiliating jokes about them. Because what did you have in Greece? If somebody got too big for their britches, they had this ostracismos, right? Ostracism. And that's where your friends could, or everybody, they could vote you out of town. They say, all right, get out of town for 10 years. And that actually really happened, right? So uh, the roast seems to be this protective way. You know, you go, it's a strange ritual. You go into a room, everybody's dressed up or they're beaming it on TV. And then other people, you sit there, you're supposed to smile and laugh. Well, they say these horrible, horrible things about you. And everybody's laughing and people you think your friends are laughing at you, but it saves you from total ostracism. Uh, so it's a, I don't know where the idea comes from in modern times. Probably has something to do with the printing press, but maybe not. We don't see it in, in Greece or Rome. In fact, in Rome, it's not clear if this is true, but they seem to have had strong controls against defamation, not necessarily legal, but social pressures against defamation. And so by and large, the humor that you see in the comedies, they don't target people by name. That's the characteristic trait of Aristophanes humor. They call it onomastikomodein, which is to target somebody by name, make fun of them by name. And in Rome, you really don't see that with a couple of exceptions. Okay, so they could not have foreseen what modern roasting culture is. They would have probably looked at us and been like, all right, I don't know what the hell that is, but Coolio, 
what about then turning it inward on its head and instead of going and roasting all of your friends, quote unquote, I suppose, if you can be friends after that, good for you. What about these dinners and these events where, of course, but you ask people to volunteer to be the speakers, to go up and they self-roast. Where In ancient times, was there anything where, okay, maybe you don't want to offend other people by telling horrible jokes about them, but about the self, was that a little more acceptable? Because it's like, okay, well, if I'm making fun of myself, I mean, a gridiron dinner where Amy Klobuchar, when she was running for president and those rumors came out about how she mistreated her staff and the comb for the salad and all that crap, she went and she spoke at this dinner in Minnesota and she literally just started roasting herself about, you know, she gets on stage and she's just like, I'm going to try to not shout. Should I whisper the whole thing? Does anyone have a comb or just like something? And I thought to myself, oh, this is so interesting because is it going to break the tension? And like, is this an effective method of dispelling rumors by just telling jokes about it? Or is she literally trying to be an apologist and be like this is my apology like i don't really know what they're going for so maybe the ancients had some clues to this they had exactly that technique that is a tried and true strategy what she did and it is the only way to get out of this kind of criticism so this stuff is actually in the book i wrote about this a little bit um and i'm, I'm developing a course based on the book right now so i talk a lot about this when you are being targeted for criticism that is when you want to try and cross the line from a serious, dignified person into what they call a scurra, a buffoon, or a, I translated stand-up comedian, somebody who makes jokes at their own expense. So for the politicians, they always say, don't make jokes at your own expense. It compromises your dignity. That doesn't mean you should make them at other people's expense. <laughs> Certainly not somebody in the audience, right? It's not really a great idea. But you know, some neutral party would be, or somebody who's not around would be a good idea. And so there are definitely plenty of examples. If you go to the comedies of Plautus, for example, there are characters who make jokes at their own expense. There's one in particular called the Parasite, who's always doing this. They're like stand-up comedians. They're clearly telling jokes about how hungry they are and that sort of thing. But with Cicero and Quintilian, they say, never tell a joke at your own expense because it compromises your dignity. But when you are being targeted for criticism and you are trying to get out of the spotlight as fast as you can, a joke is the best way to do this. And it's genius for a couple of reasons. Laughter is involuntary. So if you get the audience laughing, even against their will, it breaks up the embodied anger or the rage or the, you know, people deciding that you're the worst person on planet earth. Something. And also laughter is contagious. So if you can get one person laughing, you get a lot of people laughing, you get the whole room laughing. Cause and and there's also social pressure to keep laughing because you don't want to be the spoil sport that's not laughing because it was wrong to be. But this is the classic technique to get away from criticism, especially when it's warranted. And there's an example in the book, a guy was put on trial for, I, apparently he gambled away his entire estate. He'd inherited all this money, let's say a million bucks. And the guy inherits it and he gambles it all away. And so the prosecution makes this presentation of this guy with images, I guess they're paintings, of him playing poker and losing all his money. So then the lawyer turns to him and says, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he said, well, didn't I ever win? And you know, people start laughing and, and it works. There's another classic example for people who are interested in universities. This is kind of famous. About 10 years ago, 11 years ago, there's a legendary president of universities named Gordon Gee, and he was the president of Ohio State that year. And a scandal erupted because the football coach had been paid 4 million bucks as a college football coach. Now, if that doesn't shock the audience, that just tells you how much the culture has changed. But some people thought $4 million is a little excessive for college football. So there are all these furious denunciations, calls for the president, the, the football coach to 
be fired and everything. Finally, there was this press conference and they said to the president, you know, what do you have to say about, are you going to fire the football coach? And he skipped a beat. And then he said, I just hope the coach doesn't fire me. And it was absolutely brilliant because everybody's like, whoa, is that how it works at a university? Is that who is sort of in charge here? And it was never made clear, but you can immediately move on without elaborating. Gordon Gee is still a university president after all these years. So he lived to fight another day, very, very successfully. I think that's perfect use of exactly what you're talking about when you're being roasted like that. You address the criticism at your own expense. I mean, you don't go nuclear on yourself, but you know, you, you make a couple of jokes. Jeff Bezos was in the news for this the other day, the Titan of Amazon. And um, I guess sometime back, he was busted for having this affair and his marriage fell apart and everything. And he was being taken to shreds in the news all week long. And I guess uh, he had a business meeting on Monday, or I uh, Friday, and he walks into the business meeting with all these people that had come from all around the world to talk about some kind of business. And he just stopped. He said, before we begin the meeting, I want you to raise your hand if you've had a tougher week than I have. And everybody starts laughing. And he says, all right, let's get down to business. And you immediately move on. So if you ever find yourself being criticized, especially if the criticism is true, try telling a joke. It works. Okay. It seems like it's a really good defense. I mean, I think that's something I will definitely try to do if I'm getting due criticism. Yeah, I'm just going to lean into it. You know, don't destroy myself in the process. But that's brilliant. That's brilliant. It works. Yeah. I, I'll give you one more example if you're interested in this. It's a very first example on the power of humor. Quintilian says, you know, I, I, I have no time for these people that say laughter is a stupid thing. Anybody can laugh. He said, laughter is huge. It's amazing. I'm going to give you this example. Once upon a time, there are these teenagers in Tarentum. This is now in the south of Italy. They were getting drunk at a dinner party. And you know how it is. People get drunk. They start criticizing the king, King Pyrrhus. So we're in the third century BCE. And they start criticizing the king and one's egging on the other. And they're saying worse and nastier, nastier things about the king. Oh, that king's terrible. You can't do anything, right? And so they get arrested the next morning and they get brought into the king to explain their behavior. And Quintilian says they had no possible excuse. I mean, these guys were guilty. They've been listened to it. And so, you know, the magistrate says, well, what do you guys have to say for yourself? And one of them says, no, man, if the booze hadn't run out, we would have killed you. <laughs> And he says, you know, the magistrate or the king or whoever, he just got the giggles and just, all right, you idiots, just get out of here. And that was it. It worked. These guys saved their lives. So that's his famous, that's sort of his propylion example, this beautiful gleaming gate to lead you into the power of humor. Oh, I love it. I love it. I knew laughter and humor is conventionally just uh, always an icebreaker and something that I think is universal that people can get behind because it's it's transcendent right it's like music if it's if there's amazing music it doesn't matter what it is everyone's just gonna go oh this is amazing but yeah these are this is like really powerful stuff really powerful but really basic as well I mean this is just the power of know how to sort of self-own yourself and isn't that isn't that fascinating, right? I mean, it totally is true. Everything you just said is true. It is like music. There's no reason to think that the principles of humor should work for thousands of years and all across the world, but they absolutely totally do. And the content of any one joke, obviously the jokes are, those are going to be funny or not so funny. Some people's, as somebody was telling me the other day, I don't think Cicero's jokes are all that funny. I said, aren't you amazed that any of them are funny after 2000 years? I mean, come on. Some of these are really pretty funny. But the principles of breaking up, as you just said, tension in various ways by noticing that the world is a little off 
that things don't line up, that things are incongruous. This is one of the major sort of theories that goes all the way back to the ancient world, but mismatch theory, things, yeah, this happens with language, it happens with things. And so, of course, the language jokes are hard if you got to go from one language to another, but situation jokes are universal. In fact, there was a competition around 2002 or three, and uh, some academics went through and they found the world's funniest joke. So they had a story joke uh, about some hunters and one of them, you know, there's an accident that goes off. This is on Wikipedia. You can pull it up right away if people want to read this. The world's funniest joke. And they put it to a vote and all around the world, people thought this joke was totally hilarious. And it's not obvious that that should be the case, right? If you think about how much culture can differ, even on something simple like favorite drinks, whether you cook your food or you eat it raw, I mean, all kinds of things you can think of. Spices, people like different kinds of stuff. and But yet humor goes everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah, it boggles my mind because, I mean, I just, with something more traditionally that makes sense, like music, I'm like, okay, but if you have ears, and especially if it's something that doesn't have lyrics, so then there's that language barrier. So, you know, take any of the classic pieces that people think of the Bach and the Mozarts, and you're like, oh, well, I have ears, you have ears. It doesn't matter what our culture is. If our ears like it, it's great. But it's just so interesting thinking about it, how this conversation got me to this place where I'm like culture and humor and you have to use language. You can't just soundlessly. I mean, you could, I suppose, do sort of like slapstick with your body, but you have to be able to see it. But it's just like you can talk, you can say something, you can make light of a situation and no matter these differences, if it's funny, it's funny. It's so weird. And we live in an area, yeah, right? So if it's not pantomime, you need language and you can actually test this, right? On it, Let's say you in this course of developing, one of the assignments is you have to generate a meme. And then you could find out right away, is it funny or is it not? You could fire up a Twitter account, put your meme out there, and you'll know instantaneously. And and some of this stuff, when it goes viral, I mean, it's getting millions of likes by people. And you think, well, they can't all be people just like me. So where all, I mean, it's clear that you can just, so it's actually quite interesting. If you're trying to grow a brand of some kind, if you are careful and you do humor right, it's the easiest way to suddenly grow a brand or to fix some kind of problem. I mean, humor, it's tricky. And Quintilian says humor is risky since wit is so close to twit. And he says, you know, it's a very fine line. You know, people get insulted. You don't want to be a twit that's twitting somebody. So you have to be super careful. But if you get it right, the magic goes everywhere. It's, it's definitely an art, I will say. It's so many people tr- like sit here and try to actively be funny. And then you're like, okay, but it's not. You're trying too hard. And then some people are like great at it. They're just, they could just not even think of trying to be funny. They'll just say something and then you'll just start laughing. You're like, oh my God, that was the funniest thing you ever said. They're like, wait, what? I was trying to be funny. It's an art. And I don't know, is there like a way to train yourself? I mean, you can study some good jokes. Honestly, when I want to be funny, I got nothing. Usually my best stuff comes if it's like a certain situation and I'm like, oh, I can be punny here, but that's not straight up wit and humor or whatever. What I've usually got in my bag of tricks is like bad dad jokes. And those, those can be pretty funny or those can get old really fast. I mean, is there a trick to how do you actually train in solid humor? Yeah, that is the very question that is at the beginning of Cicero's treaties. So Cicero wrote this whole thing about humor, but instead of just writing a lecture, well, this is what Quintilian does, he creates little characters. And one of them says, tell us all about humor. And the, the, the interlocutor says, now nah, get out of here. You can't teach humor. You're either a funny person, or you're not a funny person. And uh, eventually it shakes out that the other guy says, no, there definitely are techniques here, right? So you do seem to need a 
baseline bent to be funny because we all know people that you know, they try and it's just not funny, no matter what they do. Uh, but there are techniques within that. For example, what you just said, puns, right? Both Cicero and Quintilian say puns are not funny. They are often, more often they're admired or they get groans. People say, oh yeah, that's really clever. Okay, right? Like uh, if I said, I saw the magician, saw the woman. If you can even figure out what I just said, you say, huh, what? If I said, I saw the magician, saw the woman in half on stage. Then you're like, oh, I never thought about saw. It's got these two meanings. Yeah, okay. I'd be amazed if anybody's laughing right now. But if you have a go-to joke, everybody should have a couple of go-to jokes and situation jokes. And those are the ones you want to have to win the room. You just practice until you have them perfect. Uh, but they debate this, right? I mean, so can is humor a technique? And they have techniques. What is good and what is bad? And I think it works. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't think about it until, well, I had one really great one, but it went over everyone's head because it was so situational that I can't just recreate this on any given day. The best joke I've ever told in my life, no one actually got. And so I got really sad because it went over everyone's head. I was traveling in Israel and we were riding camels out in the desert on one afternoon. And so I was like, okay, well, everyone's like having fun, but also it's really hot. It's like a hundred degrees and it's just miserable. So I was like, okay, what, what do I have in my bag of tricks? So I was like, ah, I have my humor. So I look around and everyone looks pretty tired. So I just go, hey, does anyone have a straw? Over everyone's head. I gotta and say, I'm struggling a bit myself there. The straw that broke the camel's back. Oh. So I'm yeah, sitting on a, a camel. There. Yeah, yeah. I am sitting <laughs> on a camel and I'm saying, do you have a straw so I can get off of this thing? And just everyone was like too tired. Everyone was just not into it. They were just hot. And they're like, okay, whatever. They, so the, the immediate response I got was actually, don't you have a water bottle on you? And I was like, okay, all right. That joke's got a lot of potential though. A lot. You need to refine that as a meme. Because I agree. I mean, right? The setup is ingenious. But if somebody like me is not, who's primed for it, still isn't saying it, then it's missing the ingredient. That, however could go viral. That's a genius joke with the right image. Um, I love it. I think you're right. <laughs> but it's tough, right? And so that's one of the techniques, you know, that they uh, talk about. Quintilian says you want to riff on proverbs or famous sayings. And there, I guess, was everybody a native English speaker there? Yep. Everyone was wow. either from the US or Canada. Well, then that uh, no excuses for them, because that's the biggest limitation. But yeah, you presuppose a lot, right? That people know the proverb, that they're going to be ready for it. They're going to be ready for it at that time. Anyway, it should have been better. I agree. It's pretty good. <laughs> I, and then and then like 20 minutes later, we were finally on the bus and we were leaving the camel area and there were just like huge boulders because we were on the side of a mountain. I said, hey, guys, we're driving along a pretty rocky road here. Anyone have ice cream? No, nothing, nothing. And I was so mad. I was like, why are you not laughing? I was like, you can't tell me that nobody on this whole bus of like 30 people did not enjoy Rocky Road ice cream growing up. And I was like, why is no one getting this? That's the curse of a pun. You went for the pun and you got punished. You got to be careful yeah. with that. So that is the problem. So could you refine? You could refine it for sure. That's the art of comedy, actually, is refining a joke over and over. Jerry Seinfeld talked about that once. He said, you get some some insight and you just refine the thing over and over like a potter making a, a pot and eventually it'll get there. But I, it goes against the spontaneity, right? And that is one of the great mysteries of humor. They talk a little bit about this too, Cicero and Quintilian. How on earth is it possible that 
especially when you're making some kind of response to somebody's other, how on earth are people's brains clicking away so fast that they come up with these brilliant sick burns or whatever, you know, in response to somebody, you say, how could this be? But that's what makes you look like a genius if you can do this kind of thing. Yeah, because sometimes some people say something and then it gets the whole room laughing i'm like wait but uh, but and then it's like i i'm over here in the corner like but i'm working so hard to craft one good one wit and humor man it's it's not easy it's hard uh, tricky stuff he says at the very beginning there's a pun at the very beginning of cicero he says the whole thing is funny business so it's not very easy and he's punning in latin between lewis and lewis the first one is sort of lighthearted stuff and the other is lewis means slippery or smooth he says it's hard to get a handle on this stuff <laughs> these guys are hilarious they sound like a bunch of comedians sitting around slapping each other on the back but it is true if you can master this you can go so far with humor um i did talk about this in a slightly more serious context i spent the last decade or so doing um, central administration stuff here at Cornell. So I was in the last three, a little bit more even, last four years, I was sort of a half-time faculty member. And the rest of the time, I had to try and get professors to work for free. That's a big ask. Not on their own research, which most of them will do, but on like, hey, who wants to get together and talk about the parking garage? Or who wants to talk about changing the requirements of this small thing and this other, or the times of the exams that are being given out? So the only way to foster any kind of group cohesion with all these professors coming from all around the place was to try for humor. And that got me out of a lot of problems. So you can okay. go pretty far when you don't have money to give people. Humor is one way to kind of make it a little more fun. So I feel like I haven't seen anything. Maybe you have, but we have so many dreary dramas and whatever TV shows about Rome and killing people. Why don't we have anything that's fun? Why don't we have anything that's comedic? That's that's just honestly, if, if someone took an idea and said, okay, we're going to cast all these ancient philosophers and jokesters, we're going to put them in a room and just call it ancient wine hour or something. Wouldn't like that get a pretty good follow? I, like, I feel like all these people who watch just these random things because they're funny would love something like that. And they would learn a little something about ancient figures. I agree. It's a question that's come up a bunch of times in the past. We have from ancient Rome, 27 stage comedies. I mean, who would guess that, right? Shakespearean style comedies. We have 27 of them and there's six are by Terence. They're not that funny, but the 21 or 20 complete by Plautus are hilarious. You could stage this stuff. You could purloin the jokes, uh, do everything. And so every generation, somebody writes a book saying, how come we don't think of the Romans as funny? The most recent one is a great book by Mary Beard about seven or eight years ago. And she it's called Laughter of the Romans. She said, well, these people laugh all the time. I mean, they have all kinds of jokes. Why are we not discussing this stuff? We're singing gladiators, coliseums, militarism, expansionism. But some of these people are rolling around. It could be funny. So we should do that. We need to redress the balance for sure. Would it work today? I hope so. I think so. I think there'd be creative ways to do it. All I know is I'm just, I'm a, I enjoy them. I do, but I'm just so tired of seeing repeated things that are like the HBO Rome where I'm like, okay, but I wasn't really laughing. I mean, okay. They included one character. Uh, I think it was Titus Pullo. He was kind of like the, the break the ice comedic dude, just go with, throw him in, in a situation and he'll just provide some humor for you. But I'm like, I'm just tired. It's it's dreary. I don't know. Does it does it do you feel kind of exhausted when all you see is oh joy, 
another thing about Rome that's just death and plotting and war and gaming. philosophy. Yeah. So you need to clean up your timeline. You're reading all the wrong stuff, watching all the wrong stuff. So the stuff I read keeps me laughing. I mean, as we said, I write about jokes. I write about wine. I mean, I try and read the funny stuff before I get in the earlier part of my career. I read a book all about puns in Plotus, right? I was like, yeah, somebody's got to do it. It's great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The Romans did plenty of other nasty, naughty things. That stuff's not going anywhere. If you want to read about all that, there's tons of it. We need to, I don't know, but people like all these grand histories and I got to say some of the philosophy does get a little more addictive, especially as you get older, the philosophy something like, hmm, actually, this sounds kind of interesting. We need to clean it up. Did you know that there is the world's oldest joke book is written in Greek and it comes from Roman Greece. We don't know exactly when, probably the fifth century, maybe the fourth century. I forget. You can, um, there's a terrific new self-published translation right on the internet by a guy named Bill Berg and the name of the book is The Philogelos, which means the laughter addict. And it's by, uh, we have a couple of authors' names, whoever these people are. I call them Phil and Jerry. One is called Phil Argy, or I forget the guy's name, the other is here, Ereocles. And they're mostly jokes about professors and how uh, our heads are always in the clouds and you know we're bumping into walls and falling into wells. And again, the idea is not so much that you're going to crack up laughing at these, but the idea that any of them are funny after 1500 years in a totally different world is pretty impressive. It would be fun for you to try and tell a couple on your podcast and see if people laugh. Okay. So then that means the first thing I'm going to do is go find it. And then the second thing I'm going to do is um, put it in the show notes so other people can find this and read it because we've now been hyping up the power of humor. So I feel like I need to give people the, the key to, to reading these things. And yes, I think you're right. Fundamentally, I should just stop reading all these dreary, horrible things. I need to be reading the right things. So I'll change that. But that is kind of an accessibility issue because if you don't know to do that, if you're not talking to a classics professor, if you're not talking to someone who knows that these things exist, you're not going to know. So then all you're going to think of is, well, we only have dreary war things. That's just what we have. That's a really insightful point. It is on us, faculty members, professors, people who already know this stuff, to let you, to make other people aware of it. I, I agree, right? I mean, so if, if people are good, if they have the impression all the Romans did was massacre each other in the gladi in the Colosseum and uh, yeah, we really bungled that. And so we should get blamed for that, but we can fix this. It's not too late. Oh, it's totally fixable. We just yeah. gotta like do it. Cause I think right now, most people are just not, they, I think it's like one of those problems where it, you can't fix it because you don't, you weren't aware that it was actually a problem. But now that you do know that people would have an interest, but they're not getting the info because you don't know to tell it to us, we can fix it. So we're being proactive. I like that. Very good. We're being proactive. So I want to leave it on that note and ask you to read our wonderful poem, Ozymandias, the Shelley version. We don't talk about the Horace Smith version because that's. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Terrible. Hello, listener. Are you a writer, artist, or content creator that focuses on the ancient world? Are you looking for a place to publish your work, regardless of your degree status? Submit your work to Penix. And that's spelled P-N-Y-X. Penix is a digital magazine that publishes original work from creators of academic and non-academic backgrounds. We accept writing, art, videos, and more. For information on how to submit your work, visit www.theozymandiasproject.com slash Penix, or follow the link in this episode's description. Penix, a new place for ancient ideas. I have a copy right here. Great. And then after you read it, if you could just give us your like super quick thoughts on what does this what is this poem trying to tell us? What lessons can it still offer us all these years later? Absolutely. I haven't read this in a while, but I esteem this poem. So Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. He begins, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand have sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that it sculptor well, those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
is sublime. So yeah, what is he saying, right? You can be Ozymandias, king of kings. You can have it all, but we're all meeting the same common fate, right? We're all headed toward it. So how are you going to overcome the barrier of death and try and find meaning in life or achievement or live forever after? Well, you can't live forever. So that one's out. But Horace has a response to this. His last ode, Odes 330, where he says, he boasts, he brags. He says, I made a monument more lasting than bronze. It's more impressive than the crumbling pyramids of Egypt. And what is it? He says, it's my poetry. Poetry can be replicated over and over and over. So art is how we're going to do it. Paintings are going to fade uh, and disappear or burn up or something like that. But the written word, right? If we can transmit it from person to person, if you come up with an amazing written word, a poem, you might actually live forever. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> it is. It yeah, is. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. oh man, it's, it's my favorite poem of all time. Honestly, it was the namesake for the podcast because I just love the messages. And I personally think it's Shelley's commentary on the ephemeral nature of political power. So I was like, oh, well, who doesn't love this? Of course, if we're commenting on the fact that you can't live forever, you can't be immortal as hard as you try and ha ha ha, you think you're the most powerful person, politician in the world or king or whatever. Yeah, no one's going to remember you, especially if it weren't for the little people or if it weren't for the people who go and like dig the shit up and oh, look, we've found something. And you're like, oh, so who is this dude? What did he do? Why was he so great? I agree. Everybody should go outside and look, notice the sky is blue and hug their loved ones, play with a dog, something like that. Yeah, I mean, now is the time to enjoy life. Yeah, because it's all yeah, political power. Graveyard's full of those people. Which is why it's like, why strive? I mean, you should strive to work hard and get places, but also if you're in a good spot and you're happy, why keep like pushing? Like, don't make yourself miserable because we all are doomed to be in the same place. So really don't, don't try to like get evil ideas and take over the world or, or conquer people. I don't know. I don't know. We don't really do that in the modern, in the ancient sense, but the, the modern is, is quite changed. But the last question I ask every single guest is if we are thinking about our contemporary society, is there a modern Osmandius type thing is it could be like a person or a quite conceptual idea but something that we think right now is like the greatest thing ever that's gonna stick around and then realistically in 2000 years are we gonna look back and just be like the hell are we doing what, what was that I yeah I would say titans of industry I hear enormous respect showered on Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, some of these other people for what they have accomplished, but it's all coming to an end. I mean, we can't stop it. So that's what I mean. The happiness we have to find at a more local level, I think, than uh, there's no question. Amazon apparently is taking over the entire planet. So at some point, I assume uh, that process will have to come to an end. Uh, maybe not. Maybe if we colonize Mars, it'll change. That's a good one, though. I never thought about I mean, Amazon is just like the big beast that is enveloping everything and putting all these smaller things out of business. But yeah, in 2000 years, are we going to look back and be like, ha ha ha, Amazon, what was that? Maybe Amazon will just be gone. Nothing dead. The factories will be buried. And well, we don't really have sand because we're not a desert, but we could say buried under volcano ash or something geological that is here in the States, maybe. I don't know. That's a really good one. I love that. I do. I love Amazon as a question. We can kind of 
speculate about its demise in 2000 years, what we'll think of it. That's a great one. Either way, I'm going to leave people to speculate on the future of Amazon, but I wanted to thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I love telling jokes. I love hearing good jokes and I love humor and wine and all of the things. So I will, since we've talked about how wonderful it is, I will actually put the link to your how-to book in the show notes if people want to go find it, read it, learn something from it. And then maybe some of the other links that you've mentioned, because there's so many good ones that I was trying to remember. And I was like, oh gosh, I got to remember. So I'll try to remember that. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast today really. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.